Well, hello everyone, it's Jason here. I'm one of the pastors at The Way Church, and I wanna welcome you to today's sermon. I don't know where you find yourself, but it's a delight for our team whenever we hear stories of people being strengthened in their walk with God, discovering more about Jesus and his word through these messages. So just wanted to say hello before we jump in and hope that you enjoy. Psalm 63. God, you are my God. I seek you with all my heart. With all my strength, I thirst for you in this dry desert where there isn't any water. I have seen you in the sacred tent. There I have seen your power and your glory. Your love is better than life, so I will bring glory to you with my lips. I will praise you as long as I live. I will call upon your name when I lift up my hands in prayer. I will be as satisfied as if I had eaten the best food there is. I will sing praise to you with my mouth. As I lie on my bed, I remember you. I think of you all night long. Because you have helped me, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I hold on to you tightly. Your powerful right hand takes good care of me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down into the grave. They will be killed by swords. They will become food for wild dogs. But the king will be filled with joy because of what God has done. And all those who make promises in God's name will be able to brag. But the mouths of liars will be shut. This is the word of the Lord. We can invite Dr. Ross up. Well, that's lovely. I don't know about showing off with two two PhDs, but it's a big burden, I can tell you. (laughs) It's so good to be with you and participate in what I call the spreading flame of the Way Church. God's work here, it's uh, amazing. Um, I go back with Jason quite a long way. He was telling me this, uh, Chris and and Jason were doing a a podcast with me a a few weeks ago, and uh, Jason informed me that at the age of eight or nine, he attended my church, which was his grandparents' church. And on that occasion, he asked me at the age of eight or nine some theological question. I thought to myself, that was a sign of things to come for sure. And uh, so it's great to be with you all and to share God's word. The Psalms are a part of my daily routine. I read a Psalm a day, have since I was 14. And I really uh, encourage you to make this series into a habit in your life um, of um, reading a a Psalm. They are the prayer and praise book of the church. Um, Not just the Old Testament, but they are mentioned in the New Testament and such an important part of the life uh, of of the church. Um, You know, I'm sure that every preacher so far in this series has believed that their psalm that they got to choose was the best of all the psalms, the richest of all the psalms, but they were all wrong. Um, One of the greatest commentators on the psalms, Derek Kidner, Old Testament scholar, said this, there may be other psalms that equal this outpouring of devotion, Few, if any, surpass it. And according to Charles Spurgeon, Chrysostom tells us, that's one of the church fathers, Chrysostom tells us that among the primitive Christians, it was decreed and ordained that no day should pass without the public singing of this psalm. Um, It's certainly one of my favorites, and it's a joy to share with you. There's so many rich themes in it. I want to focus really on two things. Covenant and covenant, which becomes covenant intimacy. Covenant and covenant intimacy. This psalm is all the more remarkable for what it reflects of a rich life with God. For the 
in light of what David is going through at this time that he writes it. He's in the desert. The desert is a place, but a desert is also his soul. And the place geographically reflects where his soul is at, is at. Most Hebrew scholars believe that it belongs either to David's wilderness years before he came to the throne of Israel, or to his brief but painful exile from the throne in the rebellion of his son Absalom. I can't imagine any pain more great than having your own son rise up against you, lead uh, the affections of, of your people away from you, uh, run an army against you. And it's in the midst of that desert that it's thought that, Paul, that uh, David wrote, wrote this, this psalm. Um, the most remarkable thing about that desert experience for me is how when Absalom actually lines up his forces against David, and uh, it's a tragic story. Absalom had this bushy hair. He gets caught in a tree. And Joab, who is David's commander, doesn't lose his opportunity to, to put three javelins into his heart and kill um, David's son. When David wants to hear the story of the battle, he's anxious to know just one thing. Is my, young, is my son safe? Despite all his rebellion, is my son Absalom safe? And when he finds out that he's not safe, you, we, hear the, we hear the cry of a father who for all the faults of his son, all the rebellion of his son, is, is still a father. And he says, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. That's the kind of environment in which the psalm is, is crafted. What precipitates our desert experiences is not just the sense of emptiness that comes to us from time to time, but often that's associated with great loss and grief. When we've been kicked in the gut in some kind of a way, when we've been jilted, when we've been bereaved, or fired, or disappointed, and then suddenly we realize our thirstiness. Our soul is thirsting. Compounding this pain and making this gem of a psalm even more remarkable is that David has not been able to go to the temple or actually it was the tabernacle at that time in order to worship with the people of God. So he's all on his own in exile. And it kind of reminded me a little bit actually of what we were like maybe just a year or two ago in the midst of COVID. We are now able to gather as the people of God, which is wonderful. But the inability to gather with the people of God creates in David, in addition to all the pain he's going through, this painful sense of desolation. And so here's my question. What sustained David in the midst of these circumstances? I think that's really the question uh, that the psalm answers. And then to make it personal for us, the psalms are very personal. Um, the question is, what will sustain you in desert times. How does this gem of a psalm arise out of the ashes of David's experience? How can this gem of a psalm help to create a sense of stability in the midst of our difficult times? Well, the psalm begins with these words, oh God, you are my God. We could actually stay on that phrase for the whole of our sermon. It's an absolutely amazing phrase. Oh God, you are my God. Why do I say that's amazing? Because that's covenant language. It echoes a number of times in the Bible, Old Testament and New, where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. 
And here you hear the human response of David to the fact that God is his God. And so in the midst of all of these circumstances, one thing he holds on to that can never change, it's this, oh God, you are my God. This is covenant, covenant relationship. What sustains us in the desert? Faithful covenant, the faithful covenant character of God. The almighty God of creation is also the God who enters into covenant relationship with us as image-bearing human creatures. David's words here are reminiscent of Jeremiah, which said, which, where God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. It's evocative of the fact that three times in the Song of Solomon, um, there is this wonderful exchange of um, words between the, the lover and the, and the loved one. My beloved is mine and I am his. I am my beloved's and he is mine. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. So what I'm trying to say is this first phrase is evidence that David is in a solid covenant relationship with God that's going to enable him to stand up in the midst of all of his challenges and his desert. Of course, there's a covenantal, there's a communal nature to the covenant of God that's been made with us, but there's also a deeply personal nature to it. Notice the psalmist says, you are my God. So even when we cannot be with the community of God like David was in this circumstance, he is still able to say, this is my God. Folks, I know that individualism is a danger in our times, but we must not be so anxious to rail on it that we forget the legitimate personal nature of a relationship with the personal God who sustains us. The Apostle Paul, who can in one moment say, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, can out of the other side of his mouth say, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me say a little bit about covenant. I think it's a wonderful theme. First of all, you know, the covenant that God has made with humanity and with the church and with you and I is an eternal covenant, and it is objective to us. Let me put it this way. We had nothing to do with it. In eternity past, God made a covenant to be for humanity. If there's one thing I've learned in the course of my studies theologically over the last 20 years is, is this, that God is for us. God is for humanity. Yes, he is a God of righteousness and wrath and justice, but above all, he's the God of love, defined by love, defined by his triune nature as three persons in intimate love with one another. And that God of love, in eternity past, before he even created the universe, before he even created humanity, vowed, I will be for the humanity that I will create. And this is how I will show that I will be for the humanity that I will create. I will give my very son to become human, to become one with humanity, in order to redeem it when it goes astray. This is the covenant that God has made uh, with, with, uh, within his own eternal being. And then that gets played out in history. One of the greatest covenants of the, of the Bible is that described by um, by Genesis, when Abraham, um, God makes this amazing unconditional covenant with Abraham when he walked as a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch, which appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made covenant with Abraham. So in Genesis 15, God takes sole responsibility for the existence and security of his offspring and the land. That's the kind of God we belong to. And then in the New Testament, God is the God of covenant with the seed of Abraham. Christ becomes the only human being who could ever hold up his end of the covenant. 
He becomes the guarantee of, our, of a better covenant. Um, he died for us. He, he came into, into the world for us. He lived vicariously for us. He died on a cross for us. He lives forever in the power of, the, of an endless life. He is, uh, and, and, and the book of Hebrews says, Jesus has therefore become the guarantor of a better covenant. This, my friends, is the heart of our relationship. We belong to a covenant God who is for us. Covenant is the very ethos of our relationship. But here's the problem. Here's how we run into difficulties in our Christian lives, I think. The Christian life is quite up and down. It's not all glory. It's wonderful to be here and worship with the people of God and have our hands in the air and feel the love of God and the presence of God. I love it, but that's not the whole Christian life. There are ups and downs. And what enables me to get through the downs in particular is this objective reality that God has covenanted to be for us and that he is a God who is a covenant God and not a contract God. I think we believe that God is a covenant God, but something in our psyches tells us that God is a contract God just waiting for you to slip up so that he can bash you over the head and get you right again. And how you that deep inner psyche and how you feel about God is affected by all kinds of things. Your parental upbringing, your, your, school, your schooling. I was, I was raised in pretty tough circumstances when it comes to schooling. I grew up in the, the country of what is now Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe had schools that were very tough. And some of the teachers, I, if I, I could regale you with abusive stories about how teachers treated us. One was Doc Harris. I'll just share that for just a moment. Doc Harris was a biology, uh, biology teacher and uh, he was also a South African boxing champion. If you slipped up in class, or if you, if you cheeked him in any way, he would literally knock you out with a punch. He wouldn't have lasted one day in the schools of Canada. Well, one day in class, he got stuck on something up at the board, and uh, I couldn't believe this, but he actually asked my opinion. And uh, I guess that was because I was reasonably good at biology, but my friend next door, who was, you know, he, he had really great ambitions to become a doctor. He was, he was kind of irritated that, that I got asked by Doc Harris to comment on this cell biology thing or whatever. I have no idea what it was um, now. But, so I ventured an answer, and then my friend Paul Emerson sitting next to me said, Hastings, don't guess. And I, so I started to smirk and laugh a little bit. Well, Doc Harris, that was the wrong thing to do with Doc Harris with his insecurity. He put his glasses down, he says, Hastings, you feeling superior, boy? And I said, no, sir, no, sir. Emerson made a joke, sir, uh, because I was, about, I was about to be hammered by him. That's the kind of, so he was, he was, he was a classic case. And he actually liked me. I was his star pupil in biology, but I could never trust what, his, what, what he was going to do. Never trust what he's going to do. And so... That, I think, has affected my view of God. Perhaps you had parents who were abusive. That affects your view of God. That can be overcome. You can go through healing and, so, and all of those things. But I guess what I would just want to say to you is that God is a God of covenant who's always for you. And it's really important, I think, to try to overcome the contract sense that we have within our theology even and within our, within our psyche. 
You know, I, I like to liken this a little bit to marriage. Marriage is spoken of as a covenant in the Bible which reflects the covenant of God with us. Um, and uh, sadly today in, in society, mar marriage is often treated like a contract rather than a covenant. And there are three differences, I think, between a contract and a covenant. A covenant is based on trust, a contract on mistrust. A covenant involves unlimited responsibility, whilst the contract defines limited liability. Covenant expresses unconditional love, whereas a contract reflects conditionality. So when two people enter marriage with a covenant understanding, they each give the other the gift of rock-solid stability that will carry them through the ups and downs of their experiences of love. Love as an emotion, love as eros, goes up and down. But the covenant love of God never changes. And the covenant between two people in a marriage is intended to keep them together, even as they work through all of the ups and downs. So that's point number one, covenant. How do you survive the desert times? Number one, you rely on something objective to you. God loves you. And I want to tell you something. You know, one of the great theologians of all time was asked, when were you saved? And he says, I was saved the day that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Well, he wasn't even around, right? This person, this great theologian. The point is that God loved us. Christ redeemed us before we were even born. And you have nothing to do with it. And that's the objective reality. And we need to hold on to those things by faith. But I think um, the most remarkable thing about this psalm is maybe... Not just that it's about covenant, but that it's about intimacy within covenant. So, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. Here's the great question of the psalm. Okay, if, if God is the covenant God, why is the psalmist still seeking him? Why is the psalmist who believes in the rock-solid objectivity of who God is for us, saying things like, my soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. If the covenant God is yours, yours forever, why are you thirsty, David? That's the question I have. And see, this, this is simply an acknowledgement of David's thirst in the desert. God is his God, but right now he can't seem to find him. God is his God, but he can't feel his presence. God is his God, but right now he can't see his glory. This is an acknowledgement that he can't go to the worship center of the people of God right now, and that affects his subjective experience of God. Most of the psalm is about our subjective experience of God, but it is couched, first of all, in the language of covenant, and so that the ups and downs of our experience with God are steadied by the sense that God is for us. But let's look at this, uh, what, this second main point of this psalm. What sustains us in the desert? First, the faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God, but second, the reality that we, that, uh, that we have hunger and thirst for the God of the covenant. The idea here is that the rock-solid reality of covenant relationship holds us in the ups and downs of our experience of relationship with God when our intimacy with God cannot be felt. But the very fact that we have such desires for intimacy, that actually sustains David. And I want to say to you, that's the greatest thing about the down times in our lives is that if you're truly a child of God, you're still hungry for him. 
You're not feeling him, but you're hungry for him. And for that for David is a huge sign of encouragement. And he can also look back on previous experiences of God and say, you know, in those experiences, I saw his power and I saw his glory and that fuels my desire to see it again and to see it more. See, on the one hand, covenant inspires intimacy. If I can truly say to God or to Christ, I belong to you and you belong to me. That's the most amazing thing, right? That, 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 that's wonderful. And that inspires me to get to know him. I mean, after all, if I were to marry, my wife's sitting in the third, third row back there, if I were to marry my wife, Tammy, and enter into covenant relationship with her, but from the moment I entered into covenant relationship with her, for the rest of our life together, I have no interest in knowing her. No interest in, 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 in deepening my intimacy with her. Something's sadly wrong with that. And um, because there's so much to know of the depths, of the riches of her personality and her ways and so on. It's sad to see couples often at restaurants who are clearly in a long-term relationship but have zero to say to one another. Awkward. But in this case, David says, you know, I'm in covenant relationship with God. I'm going through a hard time, but I want to tell you something above and beyond everything else. I long, I have a thirst to see him. And that's a good thing. And that's a sign that sustains me. Covenant sustains me and my thirst for God sustains me. We are very much up and down. I remember a long uh, number of years ago, I had been through a renewal in a church in Montreal and God had powerfully worked in that church. Uh, the church grew, grew from 500 to 1,000 almost overnight. People were coming to Christ in droves. The sense of God's presence, that's above everything else, the sense of God's presence was so rich. And, uh, and then, after a short while, that sense of renewal was gone. And we were back to being faithful when we didn't feel much. And um, I spoke to Brian Dirksen, who's a well-known worship leader of the Vineyard at that time, and uh, I deeply respect Brian. He's, by the way, he's written, he's trying to write a song on every psalm, 100, 150 psalms, and not just the juicy parts of the psalms. And I, 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 walked, I walked up to him at this worship concert, and I said, Brian, I said, um, I'm really discouraged. I, I don't feel the presence anymore. I don't feel the anointing when I preach anymore. He says, Ross, I haven't felt the anointing for three years. This was the height of a wonderful season of his ministry. So what do you do when you don't feel the anointing, when you don't feel the presence, when you read the word and it just seems blasé? You're faithful and you cultivate your thirst. You cultivate your thirst. Most of us will go through the dark night of the soul at some point in our lives, as St. John of the Cross described it in the 16th century. I've had my own share of those personally. And I've seen others go through them in the ups and downs of the felt experience of God in churches I've served. I was fascinated to find out this, that Mother Teresa of Calcutta suffered the dark night from 1948 to 1997. No feeling, no sense of the presence of God. But here's the key. She remained faithful to her spiritual practices all through this, all, all through this driven by her thirst for God and she never flagged in her amazing service to the poor in Calcutta, moving, moved by the thirst within her for Christ. 
The thirst kept her going. The covenant is the rock solid. The thirst is an encouragement for us to, to keep going. Our experiences of God are up and down. They're inscrutable. There are seasons when we taste, uh, as, as the psalmist does here, I beheld your power and your glory. And then there are other times when I can't behold at all. And yet I remain, I remain faithful. So what will sustain us in the desert? The permanence of covenant and the pursuit of intimacy within covenant. Communion with Christ. Cultivating my thirst. There are actually seven dimensions of this pursuit of intimacy. I'll just mention them very briefly. Um, when, when, when David begins to talk about his pursuit of intimacy, his thirst, and how he's dr driven towards God despite his emptiness, he says, first of all, earnestly I seek you. Some of the versions that you may have read put the words, early I seek you. And either way is good, but early kind of connotes the idea that here's what David does in the midst of spiritual thirst. I try to meet with God as early in the day as possible before everything else crowds into my life. Secondly, it is holistically passionate. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. What does intimacy with God look like? Uh, what does our thirst for him look like? It involves our soul and it involves our body. The pursuit of intimacy with God was passionate. It involved his whole being. Someone has said that David had a magnificent obsession with God. It was an incarnational pursuit of God. It wasn't some kind of dualistic or mystical escapism. We hear a lot in culture today about, you know, I'm not very religious, but I, I, am, I, I really want to be spiritual. Well, there is no spirituality apart from incarnation, apart from physicality. Um, thirdly, it is exclusively pure in a dry and weary land where there is no water. What does intimacy with Christ looks like that sustains me? And uh, even when I can't feel it, what do I do? I'm... He says, in a dry and weary land where there is no water, he's constantly aware that the, there is a desert around him. And I think perhaps David knew, maybe more than most, that there were alternative sources for satisfying his soul that he could easily run to. We all have desires that are inappropriate. But David knows they're not real water, just like Jeremiah says, the broken cisterns. There are many dangerous sources of immediate gratification in our contemporary culture that cannot satisfy the core of our hungry souls. This is the very heart of humanity today. And it can be even for those of us who profess to know Christ. This is, this is the very core um, that we, we, we have a deep desire and sometimes it's so easy to use other things to satisfy that desire. And we get into addictions and all kinds of challenges in our lives as a result. Larry Crabb once wrote that our experience of intimacy with Christ expels the controlling and compulsive power of lesser affections. Fourth, Intimacy is inspired by memories, experiences of the past. I have seen you in the sanctuary. What's, 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 what's David doing? He's trying to lift up his own soul, and he thinks back to the, some of the experiences he had of the very presence of God and his power and his glory. Um, I tell you what I was reminded of when I read these, this phrase, Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah has an encounter with the power and glory of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and he was high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. It's the exaltedness, the glory of God. 
What I love about that passage is, first of all, he feels undone by that presence of God as we always do when we have an encounter with him. But in addition to that, God forgives him. And he finds himself listening in to a conversation between the three persons of the Trinity. So one of the things we can do when we're struggling in the midst of deserts is try to rehearse the things that God has done in your life. I, uh, I try to rehearse a few, and I'll just share. These are very personal. Yet the Psalms are personal, so I'm, I don't want to apologize for that. But uh, at the age of 14, I was at a meeting in uh, Salisbury, Rhodesia, now Harare, Zimbabwe. A speaker from England came, and he urged people to stand to their feet if they wanted to um, rededicate their lives to Christ, give their all to Christ. And this was in, a, in an atmosphere that was very foreign to me. It was all the people of God together. I was used to being in one church, and we believed that one church was going to heaven pretty much, and everybody else wasn't. I stood to my feet trembling, and the Spirit of God came upon me, and he imparted into my life a hunger for the Bible. And I began to read at the age of 14. I read the Bible through every year, all my teenage years, right on until I was in my 30s. And that's one of those moments I will never forget. Thank you, God. I have seen your power. I have seen your glory. Another time, at age, age 15 or so, I'm in a, on a holiday. I'm, I was alone in my room, and I, start, I opened up to Mark chapter 4, and a sermon with four points came right into my head, and I wrote it down, and I knew I was called to preach. I've been through significant struggle with depression in my life, clinical depression. And uh, I'll never forget... Christian psychiatrist who said to me when I said you know what right have I got to be in the ministry when I'm so depressed who wants a depressed pastor right who wants somebody who's had clinical depression she said these words Ross your deepest brokenness will be your greatest ministry the economy of God is upside down in that context as well also I was greatly helped by the counseling but God met me one night when I was very frustrated and very angry I went to the Save on Foods and everybody in the line in front of me had massive amounts of groceries. And the lady, the lady who was taking the, uh, what do you call those people? Check, the check, the check, checkpoint people anyway. I think, I think, she, I think she was new. And, um, and inside I'm going, come on, I don't, I've got to get back to my kids and my wife who was sick at the time. And um, I get in the car, slam the groceries in the back, and... I got into the car and I looked across and there was a worship music tape. And I'm going to tell you, my first thing to think was, this is the last thing I want to do right now is listen to a worship tape. It was a tape by a black worship leader from Boston. And um, so I guess the Spirit of God made me do this. I shoved it in the tape. This is, this is how, old, how old the story is. It was a tape deck. <laughs> and this man began to sing this song. Loved with everlasting love, led by grace that love to know. There you go. Loved with everlasting, that's covenant. Led by grace that love to know, that's experience. Thirst for it. Thou hast taught me it is so. Spirit breathing from above, thou hast taught me it is so. Oh, this full and perfect peace. Oh, this rapture all divine. In a love which cannot cease, I am his and he is mine. And um, 
I am not prone to crying. I'm Scottish, after all. But in that moment, that song worked its way into my heart. And for the first time, I'm going to say for the first time in my adult life, I actually felt the love of God. And he poured that love into my soul. And I got home and my wife said to me, what's wrong? And I said, actually, nothing's wrong. I've never been so amazed by how much, how much God loves me. Um, Things that once were wild alarms cannot now disturb my rest. Closed in everlasting arms, pillowed on the loving breast. Oh, to lie forever here, doubt and care and self-resign. While he whispers in my ear, I am his and he is mine. God gave me a gracious visitation of his love. And to this day, I look back and I say, that was real. And that sustains me in the low moments of my life. Fifth, intimacy looks like praise. What is the language? How do we express our thirst for God and our intimacy with God? And this psalm, if it teaches us anything, it's that the, the greatest language of intimacy is adoring praise. By the way, in marriages, praise will build a marriage. Criticism will wither it. And with regard to our life with God, David says, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods, and with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. In this psalm, that praise is informed by the love of God, verse 3. It's informed objectively by who God is and his love, uh, verses 3 to 5. Uh, it's informed, it's expressed subjectively by us as we lift up our hands and as we praise him. Um, and the most interesting thing here is that praise in David's life, despite all he's going through, he's still able to praise. He doesn't praise God for his circumstances. That's super spirituality. He praises God in the midst of his circumstances and looks up to God. And uh, his is the praise that pervades all of life. As I lie on my bed, I remember you. I think of you all, through, all night long because you've helped me. I sing in the shadow of your wings. And then it is a praise of practiced intimacy. I love these words. I hold onto you tightly. That reminds me of Jacob when he wrestled all night with God. And when the morning came, he's still clinging. He's still clinging. And I want to encourage you to cling to God in prayer, to cling to God even in the midst of your difficult times and know that ultimately he will bring the victory. Maybe not in this life, but in the life to come. And verses 9 to 11 is all about the ultimate prevailing or triumph um, over our enemies. It's an imprecatory piece in the psalm. And um, so here we are. How will we be sustained in desert times? Holding on to the objective reality of the covenant of God who is for us. Number two, deepening our thirst. Being encouraged that we have a thirst. Deepening our thirst and staying faithful until a fresh season comes into our life. But you know, the victory really isn't until we see Christ. Um, the Bible teaches us the kingdom has come, but not yet fully come. So in the, in the midst of our lives right now, we struggle um, to speak about victory all the way in our Christian lives, I think, is a little inappropriate. It's triumphalism. But there is triumph. The triumph is waging the battle with God, 
and the armor he's given us and anticipating that day when the battle will be over, the kingdom will have fully come. And uh, I couldn't help but think of Revelation 22 as I thought about the river in this psalm and the thirst of God. The river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Just a few nights ago, I watched the movie for about the third time, A River Runs Through It. I love to fly fish. And uh, as, as a line in that movie goes, um, there is very little, uh, there's a complete merger of religion and fly fishing in that beautiful, um, beautiful thing. But um, right at the end of the movie, of course, the father in it is a Presbyterian minister, and there are injections of divine truth into it from time to time. And right at the end, these words in the novel, which are written by the older brother, eventually all things merge into one, and a river runs through it. I couldn't help wonder if, if the Presbyterian father didn't think about that piece and bring it to us. And so I want to say to you that as we live out our lives here in struggle, sometimes with seasons uh, where we're in season and we sense so much and we feel so much in many seasons when we're a faithful and we're pursuing intimacy still and we cultivate our thirst with God, let's never forget to look forward to that day when Jesus will have... Uh, brought about the great victory over uh, all the forces of evil and the whole universe will be renewed. Revelations 5, 11 to 14 describes this moment. Here's a glory moment. Here's a power moment we all look forward to. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. The voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times thousand, 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. This is what we're made for. The fulfillment of covenant, the satisfaction of our thirst in a full and final way in a coming day. Thank you. Well, I want to thank you for listening to today's sermon. I'm Jason. I'm one of the pastors at The Way Church. And if you want to find out more about what's going on in the life of our church or how to get connected more deeply, you can go to thewaychurch.ca. We're so encouraged to hear stories about how these messages have been strengthening people in their walk with God, drawing them deeper in their relationship with Him and in His Word. And so this is love from our team to you. Hope you're doing well today and love to hear from you.